The elections in Mexico and why they matter to the United States. That's our topic today on 35 West. My name is Richard Miles, and my returning guest is Shannon O'Neill, Vice President at the Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome back, Shannon. Thanks for having me. So, Shannon, first thing i got to ask is, what was bigger, the historic presidential election on July 2nd or Mexico's game against Brazil on July 2nd? I think people are happier about the election than they are about the game. Well, I, I joked to some of my friends. I said, look, AMLO wins, and already bad things are happening to Mexico. So, but. <laughs> Let's put the, the, the victory, which was a resounding victory, in, in context, or maybe you can help us put it in context. I mean, you know, first of all, it really was, it seemed to me, uh, just a stunning electoral victory. I mean, he, the last time I checked the stats, uh, you know, I think he had a, a, an absolute majority in 20 of 32 Mexican states. He gained a plurality in 30 of 32 states, majorities in both houses of Congress, a victory margin of, of 30 points. Is this... What is this unprecedented? What is are we entering a new era of Mexican politics? It really was a, a historic victory, and it's hard to say before 2000 because elections weren't necessarily free and sure. fair. But in the democratic era, um, this was this was a record win, and and the fact that this is a multi-party election, so there were four people running, and that he got López Obrador got 53% of the vote, so a strong majority is is really a, a huge mandate and it comes to as you were saying it comes with majorities in both the house and the senate uh and so he will have not only a mandate to do things that he's been told by the people by the voters but he'll also have the tools to do it because he will control congress for majority votes and he won't be very far from a two-thirds majority which is what's needed to change the constitution so this really is a president that will come in on december one with with a lot of latitude to fulfill the campaign promises that he wants to fulfill. What does this mean for the other political parties? I mean, does this effectively spend, uh, spell the end of the PRI and, and even the PAN? And is, is Morena now kind of the new PRI? Is that what we're looking at? I mean, that is the big question going forward. But with this historic win by Morena coming in, you saw the decimation, particularly of the PRI. And so it came in a far third, fourth, sometimes fifth, in various states in terms of their representatives or senators uh, within at that state level. Um, and you also saw the, the presidential candidate, uh, Jose Antonio Meade, come in a, a far third. So the PRI, which had been the dominant party, and even when it was out of Los Pinos, out of the, the White House, the president's house uh, within Mexico, it had still been the major player in the Congress, the major player in terms of governors and the like. And that will no longer be the case. Part of the pre-success for so long was, was that control, particularly at the state level, of all the resources that the states, the states control. And they will now only have about a dozen uh, governorships. So it's, it's, they're losing that, that real base, that patronage base that had driven them for so long. Uh, and I do think there are pretensions uh, with AMLO, with Morena, to become that new pre, uh, to be that all-encompassing party. And you saw it in the elections. You saw the somewhat strange bedfellows that joined under the Morena banner. You saw people from, from the far left, from the workers' parties and others, and then the far right with the uh, conservative evangelical party that all joined this coalition. So what I do think Lopez Obrador is trying to do is bring some of those those conflicts uh, that happen in a democratic arena, taking them out of the democratic system and bringing them within his party, within Morena, which is something that the PRI did very successfully for decades. 
Let's talk very quickly about the other candidates and, and your assessment uh, in terms of their campaigns that they ran. Jose and Antonio Meade for the PRI and, and Ricardo Anaya for the PAN. Did you know, how were they or what kind of campaigns did they run in, in your view? Did they do as well as they could have been expected or did they make some serious errors in judgment in terms of how they ran their campaigns? Well, when you look at Jose Antonio Meade, he was not a natural priest. In fact, he is not part of the PRI. He was never, he's an independent. He served in the cabinet, five different positions in the cabinets under both PAN and, and PRI presidents. And so one of his challenges was he was not a someone from the pre so he didn't excite the base um part of the reason he was chosen was that because the pre was so toxic during this election there was so much frustration and real anger at the pre for deep-seated corruption for spiking of violence for other challenges under the rule of Peña Nieto under the governorship of Peña Nieto um that that they needed to turn to someone else but I do think it was such a heavy lift for any candidate to come in and try to reform and re-guide the PRI when it had such a, a toxic brand at this point. I think it was really a hopeless cause. And Jose Antonio Meade has lots of great qualities. He's seen as personally honest. He's a very, cap, uh, very capable technocrat and cabinet minister in many different fields, but, but he was not a natural campaigner. Uh, he is not someone that, that is out there that hasn't been his strength, and, and I think that was part of the campaign or some of the challenges, too, that they faced. But I don't think anyone, even the most charismatic leader, could have really overcome the, the weight of the pre and the problems that that party had in this election. Turning to the PAN and to the, the coalition that Ricardo Anaya was leading with the PAN and the PRD, which was a historic leftist party as well as a, another independent party that came all together, the real challenges there to me in this campaign was that it was very hard to tell what Ricardo Anaya believed, what he was pushing for. Um, there's a lot of talk about being what they call the voto útil, the sort of useful vote or a strategic vote vis-a-vis -vis for those who didn't want to vote for AMLO, you could vote for him, but that didn't tell you anything about what he actually wanted to do. And his path up there to gain uh, the nomination for, within the party for the presidency and also to bring this coalition together made a lot of enemies in the way he did it. And so in the end, he didn't have that support base. And then finally, I would say I think his campaign itself was, was quite disorganized. They never developed a fine-tuned team to get out the message. It was very micromanaged by the candidate, and they never really had the, the base behind them to, to push forward his proposals. So, so they fell flat. Uh, particularly in a year when Mexicans were looking for change. So we're we're now we're, we're recording this on July 11. So we're 10 days, uh, you know, into the transition period, I guess you could say, and we've already seen some initial, you know, um, signals, or at least uh, we can take them as signals in terms of how um, Lopez Obrador is going to sort of run his government and his policy. We we know that the you know the day after the election he gave a very sort of reassuring speech to the business community. We know that um, on Friday the 13th, they'll be meeting with Mike Pompeo and Chris Nelson and, and Jared Kushner, um, seeming to send sort of positive signals to the U.S. And, and in terms of personnel, you know, I, we saw that he, he named Marcelo Ebrard as his foreign minister, kind of bumping aside Hector Vasconcelos, which, I mean, to be honest, probably you and I are the only people in the United States that knew that Hector Vasconcelos was slated to be foreign minister you know, so probably not a, a big shock there. But it, does this add up to anything if for you, um, Shannon? Or, or what are you seeing just in their, our initial 
data of the first week and a half of uh, Lopez Obrador transition? So in looking abroad, there has been a very conciliatory message. You saw the, the proposed finance minister, Urzura, come out and speak with investors right after the election, the day after, and, and talk about the independence of the central bank and market-friendly policies and the role for the private sector and sort of business as usual in, in many of those ways. So I think that is they are looking abroad and they are looking for support to say, look, we're going to be pragmatic. We are going to work well together. You have seen Alfonso Romo, who has been nominated chief of staff, is a prominent businessman in, in Mexico, has been with Lopez Obrador throughout the whole campaign. He, too, has come out and done many interviews. The same sort of message. We're going to be a market-friendly administration. Don't worry about those things. Um, and, and AMLO himself has done that. He did that in the first speech he gave on, on election night at the Hilton Hotel um, so, so I do think we're seeing sort of the calming mechanisms uh, for those outside who are worried. And, and one other aspect there is, while many of these people have been officially named by Lopez Obrador, you mentioned Ebrard in the foreign ministry, we've seen Carlos Azura in, in the finance ministry, the energy ministry, the person that was on the initial shadow cabinet, that was the, the cabinet during the campaign, she has yet to be reaffirmed or, or mentioned in public, and she has a much more... Uh, she's a longtime worker at Pemex, has, uh, was very uh, adamant or outspoken against the reform process and, and the changes in the opening to private sector investment. And we have yet to see whether she will actually be the energy ministry, which is, again, I think a bit of a sign that they're taking a very pragmatic role vis-a-vis -vis investors and international companies uh, so far. I would yeah. say, though, at the same time, when you look at the things they're talking about domestically, they are beginning to talk more and more about the kinds of social programs that they, that they want to put in place. And many of them, there's good reasons to do these things. Mexico has high levels of poverty, high levels of inequality. They need to make many changes in terms of investing in infrastructure. They have very low levels of investment in public infrastructure, which holds back the economy if you don't have good roads and rails and ports and airports and all those sorts of things. Um, but the question is, how will you pay for all of these things? Um, so you, uh, on one side, you're speaking in very friendly market terms and pragmatic terms. On the other side, you are reiterating some of these promises that while many of them would be good for Mexico, you have to find a way to pay for them. Right. It almost makes me wonder if, if a lot of what we're going to see, uh, at least on the domestic side, is sort of – uh, symbolism, because if he's um, if he's serious about maintaining fiscal discipline and a balanced budget, et cetera, there's only so many um, you know social giveaways or you know safety net programs that he can expand or, or, or finance and so on. Um, it's an interesting point you make about Ocionale, that sort of the shadow energy minister, because you know it it would be. Um, Far be it for me to accuse a politician of being Machiavellian, but but you know, it, it seems like you have someone like Hector Vasconcelos and Rocionale definitely on the left side of the political spectrum during the election, and then as soon as you win, you dump them for much more sort of centrist, pragmatic people. So I guess we'll see who he names his energy minister. But um, Shannon, what would you say are his top policy priorities? I mean, obviously, we've got a lot of time left before he takes actual power. But what would you say, you know, if we fast forwarded to December 1st at this point, that he's going to try to accomplish in, um, you know, his first, say, six months in office? So I think much of the domestic economic agenda that he laid out in the campaign, he cares about and he will prioritize. I do think we will see efforts to increase the minimum wage to some extent. 
we will see efforts to boost pensions to elderly people. It may not be doubling it as he promised in the campaign, but I think we may see efforts to increase the benefits to, to those, especially the poor. I think we will see efforts, perhaps in conjunction with the private sector, who he has reached out to on these elements, efforts to provide scholarships, to provide apprenticeships, to bring young people who are out of the workforce and perhaps out of school, what Mexico they call them, the ninis, those that aren't studying and aren't working, to bring them back into the fold, to get them out of, of the streets or the homes or, or sort of the, the lack of opportunity that, that he talks about leading to uh, crime and, and other things. So I think we will see an effort on that side, whether it will be the two million people that he, he had proposed on the campaign, probably not. But I do think those efforts will go forward. Um, there also will be efforts for, for investment in, in public infrastructure. He's already brought up again in, in this short 10-day 10, 10 period um, the desire and the promise to build refineries. Uh, so, so bring back some of that, that oil refining capacity in Mexico, but that's a big project, will cost billions of dollars. He's talked about infrastructure, putting money into that. So I think all of these things will happen and he will begin with those things. The question is, as you said, if you want to keep a balanced budget, will you, how will you pay for them? Now he's already in these first 10 days actually started talking about how to cut costs. And so a big proposal that, that he put out and that his team put out is that we'll see a centralization of the whole procurement process. So every government contract, the way that the hospitals get their medicines or the uh, Social Security Ministry does, does things or the food and the educational materials in all the schools, he wants to centralize that all within the federal government in, the, in a country where it's been very decentralized, done by the states. Um, the idea there is, one, you can cut costs because you, you, the economies of scale there in terms of buying medicines and the like. You get a better price if you're buying it for the country rather than just for a particular hospital. Um, the other idea is that this is a way also to root out corruption, that the control by mayors or governors led to, to cuts along the way, to bribes and things along the way, and that that will be cut out. Um, this will be, it'll be interesting to see how this political fight goes down. Um, in the centralization because it, it will be pitting the state against or some of the states against the federal government. So, so there will be some policies that are out there trying to, to provide benefits to people and social programs and the like, but there will also be some of these reorganizing of the federal government and the where power lies, whether at the federal level or at the state level. And I do think you will, try, you will see his team from the get-go trying to re-centralize power up to the federal level where Morena is the strongest. You mentioned, uh, you touched upon the, the fact that he wants to build some refineries, uh, I think, in Tabasco and how much money that would cost. Um, there, there is, at least in the U.S., and I'm certain to a certain extent, you know, internationally, there's intense interest in whether his government would continue the direction of the energy reforms and the liberalization of the energy sector uh, along the lines that we've seen in the last, you know, 10 years or so. And then... Um, and then, you know, the, the second tier, I would say, is sort of NAFTA. But I think probably there's less worry about that simply because it seems like Lopez Obrador's signal that, you know, they're, they're just going to go along with the negotiations as they're going on now. And they haven't, I haven't heard at least any sort of dramatic changes from what Peña Nieto government is doing. But on the energy side, is there anything there that gives you reason to believe that, you know, he would steer Mexico eventually back to this this um, you know goal of energy self-sufficiency and 
you know, trying to uh, buck up Pemex and basically reduce the growing dependency on U.S. natural gas and U.S. infrastructure investment, that sort of stuff? Or, or how do you see that playing out? You know, I think we'll see a slowdown in the opening of Mexico. So we have seen for three years a very fast-paced set of auctions of fields for exploration and production. We've seen an expansion of private sector involvement in the midstream and the distribution of, of gas and, and energy and the like. And we've even seen the sprouting up of, of gas stations that are not owned by Pemex, that are owned by BP, by Exxon, by, by other players. And, and so we've started, we've seen that go very quickly over the last few years. I do think we will see a slowdown, if not a stop, of some of those things. So one, this has just to do with a new government coming in, people trying to find their offices and get up to speed and build up their capacity. So there always is or often is a slowdown in public works projects, in auctions, in, in other types of things. So we'll see that this administration, the AMLO administration, won't be an exception there. Um, but I do think we could see a slowing of the overall opening up that we've seen, this very fast-paced opening letting the things that are in place already stay and continue, but a slowing of, of further opening up. And the refineries being talked about already are a sign there, right? This is a government that does believe in a role for a very strong state in the energy sector. Uh, some people within his big tent believe it's the only, the role should only be for the state. Others, I think, are, are more ecumenical and would, would allow for, for public-private partnerships and, and involvement and the like. And that's where I do think the government will end up going. But we could see, and I think we will see, a slowdown in that role for the private sector as we go forward. Um, and particularly, you see this push to refineries towards some self-sufficiency. Now, refineries aren't built overnight, and finding the billions of dollars needed also takes, takes a little bit of time. Um, so I don't think this will be a, a break or a quick shift, but you're talking a six-year period that he will be president. And so over that period, I, I do think the role of Pemex, the role of the state in energy, will continue to be very strong. Um, and then the last thing I would just say on NAFTA, I think before – the presidential election and today after the presidential election, the biggest threat to NAFTA's future comes from Trump in the White House. It doesn't come from Mexico or the, the president or the administration down there. So, Shannon, you set up a perfect segue for my final question, and that, and that is essentially, you know, relations with the Trump administration. As, as we know, the relationship is actually much better than it would um, seem in terms of the, the sort of second tier level of communications is quite strong and, and quite frequent. Do you see something similar developing in that, you know, setting aside the, the rhetoric that comes out of, of uh, you know, President Trump's mouth and, and the White House itself, that in fact uh, we continue apace with sort of these strong cabinet level contacts or, uh, you know, I don't know what role Jared Kushner will have, if any, going forward, although he, obviously he is going to, to meet with AMLO um, very soon. How do you see that developing? Um, are, there, are there other personalities out there that might jump into this relationship that we've seen develop over the last two years between the Peña Nieto government and the Trump administration? And I think that one of the challenges for AMLO's team coming in is the U.S.-Mexico relationship is, as you say, it's, it's very deep. It happens in many ways at this mid-level, the assistant secretaries and the deputy secretaries and the back and forth across dozens of agencies. It's not just the State Department. It's the agricultural agency. It's the EPA. It's all sorts of different agencies that, that have a stake in Mexico, and, and we see a lot of back and forth. And 
But one thing that has happened over the last two years of the Benya administration and, and the Trump administration has been uh, a move away from this institutional framework and a personalizing of the relationship, and particularly personalizing it, at least is the point, people between Jared Kushner and Luis Videgaray, who is the current foreign minister. And so it, a challenge for the new administration is to re-institutionalize that relationship, to bring it back to the cabinet members, and not just a particular cabinet member that's leading it, but to bring it back across, across all of those and, and take it out of, of, of those individuals and that individual relationship that was uncommonly close. Um, I do think that is, that's possible. AMLO's team is thinking about it that way, and, and I'm sure that on the U.S. side there are many people who, who look forward to working with their counterparts and finding where they can work. So, but I do think that that process needs to be reestablished in ways that it, was, it had attenuated, it had diminished somewhat over the last 18 months or so. That would be one of the challenges. Um, and the other ones are, are the substantive challenges. NAFTA is incredibly important for Mexico, and there are real questions about whether or not the U.S. is willing to compromise on, on any of the issues that are on the table. The Canadians, too, are part of this. It might, Mexico might be willing to do some things where Canada may not be willing to go. Um, the other issue I do think that we'll face, what so far has been uh, a fairly warm back and forth with congratulatory tweets and the like, a big issue will be immigration. And we've seen, um, obviously, the challenge of immigration, the crisis with children separated from their parents at the border, Central Americans mostly, but coming up through Mexico. And there's been pressure on the Peña government to, to keep the Central Americans that come up through and not let them come into the United States. And that, I think, will be, could be, in fact, the biggest challenge for López Obrador's new government is if there's a crisis with the Central Americans, some 100,000 to 150,000 who are moving through Mexico to the U.S. border, if they no longer can continue into the United States, what does a new administration do with all of those people? How does it absorb those people? And just to give you a, a little piece of data, the refugee agency in Mexico, uh, last year they were able to handle just about 5,000 cases out of over 10,000 that were filed. So they were barely able to get through half of their pile. Imagine if the number of people applying for asylum, applying for refugee status in Mexico went up tenfold. How would a new administration, how would they deal with that sort of crisis where they just would be overwhelmed? That, I think, is something to watch and could lead to tensions within the U.S.-Mexico relationship. You know, I agree, but I'm also struck by the fact of how, you know, here the whole family separation issue sort of blew up in the last couple of weeks of the of the presidential campaign in Mexico, and it really didn't seem to affect um, the dynamics at all, or it didn't really even seem to rise to the level of a, of a hot-button issue in Mexico. It's certainly in the U.S. it did, but on the Mexican side, I was struck by how it didn't really seem to have the same sort of political and social effect. So it just, it, you know, it makes me wonder, as, as the composition of the refugee flow across the U.S. southern border changes, um, if as a political issue between the two countries, it it diminishes and it becomes more of this sort of, I don't know, shared uh, problem that both U.S. and Mexico try to address, you know, in whatever fashion, as opposed to an instant, you know, bilateral irritant. Um, I don't know. Is that is that too optimistic? Well, the challenge that I see is right now the United States, when those Central American asylum cases or refugees come to the border, the U.S. takes them and puts them into detention here on the U.S. side of the border. Um, the U.S. is pressing Mexico to agree to, uh, to take 
to say that, so the United States can say that anyone who touches Mexico before they get to the United States no longer has the right to seek asylum in the United States. So all of those people, those tens of thousands of people, would not be put into detention in the United States. They would have to remain in Mexico. So what I what I am looking forward or what I imagine could happen is if the United States did not accept any of those people, you would not see children at the border nor, nor separation of families because all of them would be pushed back into Mexico. So Mexico would have to deal with an influx that could be 100,000 people that they have not dealt with, frankly, up until now. Um, those people have continued to come up into the United States. And so how would Mexico, and particularly a new administration that's just finding their way around the apparatus, the bureaucratic apparatus, apparatus how would they deal with that crisis? Because they would need to put a huge amount of resources into, into housing or, or at least administratively processing those people they're not ready to do. So that's where I see the tension happening is the U.S. hardens the border, shuts it to anyone coming forward, and all those people are caught in Mexico. And that would then be on the new government. Right. So if, if it gets dumped in their lap, then obviously they would be pretty angry. But, you know, you could you can envision again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic. Here. You can envision a situation <laughs> in which, you know, U.S. Mexico decide, hey, let's, um, you know, and I guess there is some precedent for actually having uh, sort of safe zones. I think this happened at the end of the Central American you know, wars in the 80s, sort of central uh, uh, safe zones in which you're doing asylum and refugee processing um, actually in the Northern Triangle before they get to the Mexican border. Anyway, something like that. It's presumably if U.S.-Mexico say, hey, let's let's try to be creative and solve this, that, that, that wouldn't be an issue. Whereas if we just shut our border and, and all of a sudden AMLA's got to deal with them, and then it's a big deal. There, are, there is an area here for cooperation. And, and the question I do think is whether the Trump administration wants to do that. If they want to outlay the resources and, and help Mexico build a system where they can take in these tens of thousands, if not more, people within Mexico and, and help take care of them within Mexico in a country that, as you know, in many of these places, in many parts of Mexico, is not safe, not only for refugees, but for, for Mexicans themselves. So it's a bigger challenge. And the question is, would the United States, would there be a, an area for cooperation and, and resources and working together on this issue, or would it be something where the United States will be back to building their wall. So most importantly, Shana, I think we, uh, we both know that people who study Mexico-U.S. relations for a living probably have job security for another six years or so. So we're, <laughs> I think we're okay. So um, There's going to be a lot happening on both sides of the border, for sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, thanks very much for, for joining uh, me again. I know you've been very busy doing interviews just like this all over the place. But thanks. Those were great insights and, and look forward to having you on the show again. Thanks, Richard. It was great to talk with you. 